We have two scripture passages. Uh, The first is from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, which is page 1045 uh, in the Pew Bibles. And then following that, I'll be reading from Psalm 41, uh, page 550. Page 550. So, um, but we're going to start with John 13, starting at verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And then Psalm 41, page 550 in the Pew Bibles, and we'll be starting at verse 8. A vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up that I might repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity you upheld me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, whose name is hallowed, we come to you uh, this morning in the light of the risen Christ. What joy to behold a God who suffers and dies and still has authority over death and sin, and suffering. We thank you that you are our God and that we are your people. Help us to be your people this morning as we continue this service in word and in deed. And we pray uh, for the message that we hear. Pray for Pastor Mark as he uh, leads us in this part of our service. 
and we ask that yours would be the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. There simply is no event or activity that takes place in the local biblical Christian church or that we participate in as biblical Christians more encouraging to us or illustrative of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our hope in him than the sacrament of believer's baptism. You may have noticed that each time I baptized Lucia, then Troyan, then Layla, I paraphrased a beautiful phrase from the book of Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. It's also in Romans chapter 6 that we read, uh, that Yuri read uh, for us uh, in our pre-worship prayer uh, gathering. In baptism, we are buried with Christ, in which we are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. It's very important that we both understand and celebrate as individuals and as a congregation what's happening when someone is baptized as a believing disciple of Jesus Christ by saving faith and eternal hope in him. It's no less than a miracle every time. Biblically and experientially, we have the Holy Spirit of God, the very presence of Jesus Christ living within us. And still many foolishly search after signs and wonders as the basis of faith, if we can call it faith. Or they chase after fleshly sensuality to feel something or employ worldly methods to make something happen and call it all the Spirit. Please don't misunderstand me. Don't get me wrong here. The, the biblical Christian faith is not merely an exercise of intellectual assent by dry, to dry doctrines or religious rites and traditions. Indeed, the truly biblical Christian faith is alive in the Holy Spirit, and it should continually engage our whole beings, the heart and the mind, even the whole body surrendered to God in Christ Jesus. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God often brings with him transcendent experiences of character transformation. That is, transforming us into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ, by the Word and by the Spirit, gifts and fruit of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit interceding for us when we don't have words. But that is often not enough among so-called Christians who want a thrill a minute, who want more, big, more, bigger, better, not realizing that our true faith is not proven in how high we jump in a moment of ecstasy, but how straight and truly we walk once we come down. In such a time as this, we are challenged to place our whole faith and our whole hope in Jesus Christ alone. If we don't do that, we can and we will be constantly disappointed, dissatisfied, restless, and ungrounded, open to all sorts of religious deceptions and irreligious pursuits, always searching for something bigger, better, cooler. We can even lose our faith and our hope. Or we can become indifferent to, consider blasé, or miss completely the single most frequent and profound miracle in God that Jesus ever manifests, which is the miracle of salvation, 
from God's wrath and judgment, forgiveness for the offense of sin, and the exchange of our unrighteousness and spiritual death for Christ's righteousness and eternal life for everyone who believes the gospel. Life for death. Light for darkness. Reconciliation for estrangement. Peace for confusion. But as the Apostle Paul put it so well, so clearly and so succinctly by the Holy Spirit about such misunderstood faith and hope in his place and time, he said it in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22, 23, and 24, Jews demand, a, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly for Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. If we were in the spirit sufficient to bring this truth forward into our place and time, we might say something like, the religious seek experiences and the irreligious success, but we preach Christ crucified, a, distracted, a distraction to the religious and an outrage to the irreligious, but to those who are called, both the religious and the irreligious, Christ, the presence of God and provision of God. Whenever someone, anyone is baptized, that is, baptized biblically in truly saving faith and eternal hope in Jesus Christ, she de demonstrates her adoption by the Holy Spirit as a beloved child of God into the household of God, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe there is no more fitting act that we can offer in worship to God in Christ Jesus on an Easter Sunday or any other day of the week for that matter than to baptize true believers under the waters of baptism into Christ's death and witness their coming up out of the water into Christ's life in the very presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Even for those of us who've been confessing Christians for a while, perhaps years, but we've never been baptized as believers. We haven't yet become fully biblical Christians and we haven't yet taken the first biblical step of becoming biblical Christians either. And generally we, find, we, we found this refusal or hesitance maybe leads to a limit to one's spiritual growth and usefulness. Now, Having said and received all that, let's not miss the subtle but very biblical truth that the sacrament of baptism does not belong to individuals but to the biblical Christian community of faith. We are baptized together and with all who've gone before us and with all those who will come after us and ultimately with Jesus Christ himself. As I shared last week in our teaching time, with our three lovely baptismal candidates, Lucia, Troyan, and Layla, the most compelling reason for us to be baptized as believing disciples of Jesus Christ is that he himself, Jesus himself was baptized, quote, to fulfill all righteousness and he calls us to follow him. The second most compel compelling reason for us and each one of us to be baptized as believing disciples of Jesus Christ is that he commands us all, one, to be baptized as his disciples, and two, to baptize as his disciples others whom he draws to himself 
from all the nations of the world, starting here at home, going into our province and nation perhaps, and onto the uttermost parts of the earth. And the message in Colossians that I cited a bit ago shows us the relevance of believer's baptism. Metaphorically and spiritually, we are buried with Christ, Christ in his death, meaning our death to sin, and we are raised with Christ to newness of life, abundant, eternal life in him. Of course, Jesus Christ is no dead savior. He is a fully alive Lord and savior. He didn't die to be killed and repetitively memorialized through the centuries as some kind of a mythical superhero. No, Jesus died to atone for the sins of the world and be raised forevermore. One of the most remarkable aspects of the birth, life, teaching, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that nearly all of it was foretold by many prophets from hundreds to thousands of years before any of it ever happened in human history. This brings us to the central truth of our message for this morning, which is, um, which is this. It's, it's printed there for you on the inside left of your bulletin up in the uh, upper left-hand uh, corner. The central truth of our message for this morning is Jesus Christ... Messiah and Word made flesh was foretold by the prophetic word in great detail, including the manner of his purposeful death and resurrection from the dead. I'll say it one more time. Jesus Christ, Messiah and Word made flesh, was foretold by the prophetic word in great detail, including the manner of his purposeful death and resurrection from the dead. This is the last installment of our pre-Easter, Easter, and Beyond Easter message series entitled, Lord of Glory, Son of God, also Son of David, Word Made Flesh, Jesus Christ. We've spent our time and attention on three messianic, messianic psalms, Psalms 110, 40, and 41 which means these are psalms written in an, with an immediate application in the time and place they were written, all psalms of David, but also they reveal detailed prophecy about the Messiah. I think Pastor Yuri and I agree that we should preach from, we should teach from, we should pay more attention to the Hebrew scriptures than we do, what we call the Old Testament. After all, rather than unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, as one contemporary popular preacher puts it, we need to become more acquainted with the old as the foundation for the new. This is especially true for the many Old Testament passages, psalms, and prophecies concerning the Messiah of Israel, whom we believe, teach, and proclaim as Jesus the Christ. We can and we should find great biblical Christian confirmation and spiritual encouragement in the New Testament church from both the fulfilled and the pending Old Testament prophecies in Christ and of Christ especially at and around Easter, when the Holy One of Israel, the suffering servant, and the Lord of hosts is revealed to be and embodied in Jesus Christ, who came to take away the sins of the whole world. 
In our last psalm, our, our psalm for this morning, which is Psalm 41, Pastor Yuri gave us an excellent introduction to it at our Good Friday service two days ago. As well as a very good transition between Psalms 40 and 41 last Sunday, which was Palm Sunday. Speaking of Palm Sunday, last week, Christianity Today published a very good article, actually, with, I thought, a risky title. The title was, This Palm Sunday, Ponder Donkeys, Not Branches. It's a good point, but it's unworkable, I think. I just don't think Donkey Sunday would have the same cachet. But we can teach about donkeys, I guess. For this morning, in conclusion to our message, we'll see that Jesus' last supper with his followers, more specifically, his betrayal by Judas Iscariot and Jesus' resurrection from the dead, are specifically foretold in remarkable detail here in Psalm 41. From shepherd boy to Israel's greatest historical warrior king to priest and prophet, David lived and wrote his psalms some 900 to 1,000 years before the events of the Christ would occur. We saw a couple weeks ago the mathematical improbability that anyone could prophesy any accurate and detailed way about the Messiah and that these prophecies might be fulfilled in any one person, namely Jesus. It's astronomical. At the very least, 10 followed by 17 zeros and as much as 10 followed by 150 zeros. It's incomprehensible the improbability of it. And yet, that's the truth of the Bible, of the gospel that we believe. Even so, we see in the text of Psalm 41, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who sees the end from the beginning, and written by David, again, 900 to 1,000 years before, before that, Jesus would be surrounded by his enemies, betrayed by a close friend, killed, and raised to life again so that in the end, which is merely the end of a new beginning, Jesus' enemy would not then and will not ever, quote here now, shout in triumph over him. The Holy One of Israel will reign forever. Now, we have mentioned this morning, as well as several other times along our way, that messianic psalms have an immediate context, here David's time, place, and situation, and a prophetic context, that of Messiah when he comes, how he comes, and in this case, details of the manner in which he is delivered over to those who will kill him. Let's look at it briefly in Psalm chapter 41. The first thing I'd like for us to think about here is, is this truth from this text, they will say, they, his enemies will say, that he is no Messiah because he is, was delivered over to death. They will say he is no Messiah because he was delivered over to death. Look with me at verse 5. My enemies say of me, now I'll be reading in the English Standard Version. You, you, if you're using our pew Bibles, you have the New International Version, but I, I, I hope that it'll be uh, not uh, too challenging to combine the two of them. Verse 5. I'm taking this, yes, as David writing it, but he is writing, in a sense, prophetically as Christ. My enemies 
Say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, verse 8, they say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again where he lies. We've heard a bit about this already, especially in Kate's lengthy reading of the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ on Friday. Here's some more. We get the idea just from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 37 and following, quoting here now, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Verse 39 and following, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 41, so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. So yes, they will say and they did say that he was no Messiah because he was delivered over to death. But that's not all, thankfully. Verse 9 starts to turn the corner, believe it or not. And it's when he was betrayed by a close friend, the Messiah will be betrayed by a close friend, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, isn't this remarkable, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Again, as David wrote this some 900 to 1,000 years before the actual event and that other David Burl, I'm talking about, already read of Jesus' exposure to Judas's betrayal. Now let's look at the actual result of his betrayal in John's Gospel, chapter 18. So you can turn there if you'd like. I'll just just read it for you, um, if that would be sufficient. We're happy to have people following along in their Bibles. Actually, we, we prefer that. From verse 1 of chapter 18, John's Gospel, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. I find that remarkable, don't you? As we remember the events surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection, 
I hope we will also take courage and delight in the unassailable facts of the various prophecies. Nearly every Easter detail was foretold from of old in the Old Testament scriptures or the Hebrew scriptures. Messiah will be betrayed by a close friend who eats his bread, whom Jesus himself had chosen as one of the 12, his 12, and who eventually, inevitably, would lift his heel against him. Back to Psalm 41. I'd like for us to think about this. And, and yes, nevertheless, Messiah will keep his trust firmly in God to raise him up. Messiah will keep his trust firmly in God to raise him up. Verse 10, but you, O Lord Yahweh, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. This is Easter Sunday, the day on the calendar that we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, I'm not going to rant about Easter bunnies and egg hunts and uh, the like being a distraction from this fundamental truth, though they are. I'd just like us to remember, here at church and in our homes, the reason for the season, which is that Jesus Christ lives. Jesus lives. And the point of remembering is to give us hope and encouragement. Let me break that word down for you. Encouragement, three parts, N, in, courage, meant. Let's make it, a ver- make it a noun from a verb. To encourage means to give courage. To receive encouragement is to receive courage that has been given to us from another. And we can take courage from remembering and believing again uh, and sharing it with others as well. And that is the point of remembering, to give us hope and encouragement to do the same. That is to keep our own trust firmly in God, to raise us up to in the end and forevermore. That is his promise after all. His promise is to raise us up with him. His promise is to invite and make us to dwell with him in the heavenlies, even to reign with him for all eternity in the new heavens and a new earth. Now, I don't know what all that means and what all that will look like, but it sounds better than, say, Parkinson's or cancer or dementia or Huntington's or shoveling snow in April or paying taxes, or or addictions to drugs, pornography, sex, TV, work, and chocolate. Wait a minute. We'll keep the chocolate. Not that we're addicted or anything, but especially dark chocolate on a shortbread biscuit. Celebration is both something that we'll do in heaven and something we'll eat in heaven, too. I'm sure of it. And yes... Messiah will keep his trust firmly in God to raise him up, and so will we. There's a fourth thing I think that we can take from this Psalm 41 in these few verses, verse 8 through verse 13. Messiah will not be put to shame, at least not to eternal shame. He was, he was put to shame on the cross, there's no question about that. And he will recover his seat in God's presence in the heavenlies forever. Verses 11 and 12. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. 
But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Now, all of us who are sports friends have seen the wild comeback of some team that just seemed to be down and dead. Have we not? We see that in sports, it happens much more often than it happens in life. And here was a great comeback, an amazing comeback, a foretold comeback, and a comeback that was inevitable. But in the moment, it looked like defeat. Can you imagine being one of Jesus' disciples or the 120 other followers probably that he had about that time? Seeing him on the cross and telling them that's victory actually? Or that he would make a comeback even though he said so? Friday, Pastor Uri read from Revelation 4 and 5 of Jesus' exaltation to the throne of God or more accurately, to his return to the throne of God. But here in Psalm 41, we read of its having been prophesied 900 to 1,000 years before the actual physical spiritual event happened. By this I know that you delight in me, he's speaking to the Lord Yahweh, we see it in verse 10, but you, O Lord Yahweh, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Here in Psalm 41, we read of its having been prophesied, these events having been prophesied 900 to 1,000 years before the actual physical spiritual event happened. Listen as I read Luke 24 to how Jesus' ascension bridges his life, ministry, death, and resurrection with the coming and ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. It's quite remarkable. I think that you'll uh, also find these words remarkable. Luke chapter 24. I had a lot of trouble figuring out where to, where to, where to start this because it's so good and apparently it's one thing dependent on another, um, but I think verse 44 to economize our time and energy is probably as good as we can do this morning. Speaking of Jesus, then he said to them, his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So Jesus has, has been crucified, laid in the tomb, been there for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and he is now raised again and is visiting with his disciples. In fact, he is about to depart from them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I just think that's fantastic. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 10, 17 zeros, 10, 157 zeros. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, 
You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He's speaking there, obviously, of the Holy Spirit, verse 60, 50, rather. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Messiah will not be put to shame, at least not permanently. He's made that great comeback and he is now interceding on, on, on our behalf before the Father until we meet back with him. And he has already recovered his seat in God's presence in the heavenlies forever, but that was foretold in a number of places, including here in, in uh, Psalm 41. Finally, the last and, and brief point, because of all that God in Christ Jesus will do, we're talking about from the psalmist's perspective, from David's perspective, so he's looking into the future, right? Because of all that God in Christ will do and has done now, all will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Verse 13, blessed be the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Now, what we have here, maybe David moved to praise even as he writes prophetically about the coming Messiah, and, and that's part of it, I think. Or this may be Messiah praising God for raising him from the dead, and that's part of it too, I think. But even more so, I believe we're seeing and hearing that all who have voice are praising God for what he has done in Christ. So this is also prophetic. And we'll see in just a moment, once again in the book of Revelation, it coming true. Blessed be the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. We need only to turn to the book of Revelation to see this last possibility, this this um, uh, great throng of all who have voice to praise the Lord. Revelation chapter 21 and 22, select verses from verse 1, and we'll close with this. Then I saw John, the, the uh, apostle, and dear friend of Christ, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, 
the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jumping over now to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. We too will follow Jesus in this regard. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for the hope of Easter. After the darkness of a very, very, very bad Friday, which we call now Good Friday because it was there on the cross that Jesus gave himself up for us, indeed for the sins of the whole world. He did everything that was necessary to reconcile you to the world and us to each other and us to you. And it was awful. And it was glorious. And equally glorious, Lord, is the Sunday morning when your disciples found your tomb empty. And the women who went to to care for your body found you not there, but in the garden. And after that, you appeared to more than 500 eyewitnesses who were still living as the scriptures will be being, many of whom were still living as the scriptures were being, were being written uh, so that people could go and ask them, is this true? Did you, did you experience this? Did you see Jesus with your own eyes? And did you hear his voice with your own ears? Did you touch him with your own hands? And they said, Yes. Lord, we celebrate three uh, dear souls here this morning who, though they, they, they came to you in, in faith and trust, 
some time ago, maybe, maybe even decades ago, but Lord, uh, finally they were able to experience, uh, to choose to demonstrate their surrender to you as Lord, demonstrate that they repent of their sin and they trust you alone for the forgiveness of their sins and salvation from all that is consequence for sin. And they believe in their heart, and we do too, that God raised you from the dead and that you are no dead Savior to be memorialized, but you are a live Savior and Lord who is at the right hand of God interceding for us even this very moment. And we look forward to all of the prophecies to be fulfilled that were made about you, including those that we've read in, in the book of Revelation in the last little while. Thank you for bringing us to this place this morning. Thank you for this uh, wonderful opportunity to remember and be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.